maybe I should say a word about, for those of you who aren't familiar with us, First of all, if you're new here, my name is Greg Boyd. I'm the speaking pastor here. They call me speaking pastor. The other ones can speak too, but uh, it's not like you know we're sign language church. But um, <clears throat> I do a lot of the preaching here. And I want to just say something about kind of our philosophy of preaching. Um, one of my passions is to break down a, a several dichotomies that are very often in the minds of people. Um, a dichotomy is a false antithesis. It's a... Uh, Two contraries that aren't really contrary. Au contraire. Um, for example, sometimes people say things like this. I, I like real deep preaching. I like intellectual preaching. I don't go for all this emotional, exciting stuff, you know, getting all pumped up and radical and stuff. I like it deep and intellectual. Other times people say, I like practical preaching. I like a real practical, you know, five steps on how to heal the marriage, eight steps on how to refrain from killing your kid, 16 steps on, you know, whatever, um, how to get the job done. I like it practical, and I don't like this deep theological stuff. See, my heart's conviction is this, that the deeper you get into the Word, the more exciting it gets. And that the more clearly you understand it with your mind, the more Christianity makes sense to you in a rational way, the more emotional it gets, the more passionate it gets. If, if you begin to see clearly, understand clearly exactly what the Bible is saying about who God is, who Jesus is, who you are, you just can't help but begin to get worked up about that. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to be you know, hyperactive like me and jumping around the stage. Some people get excited by going, Woo! Yahoo! Other people get excited by going, I'm really excited right now. There's, you know, people are wired differently. That's fine. We're not, you know, there's not one way to be excited. But the, the idea here is that being passionate, being worked up, being rowdy, being excited about stuff, it doesn't mean you have to shoot out your brains to do that. In fact, I think it presupposes that you've got some brains. Otherwise, you wouldn't know what you're getting excited about. Same thing for theology. Now, maybe I'm a little biased here. I'm a theology prof, okay? So cut me some slack. But, but uh, I really believe that the deeper you get in stuff theologically, if you can hang with it, it's not always easy, but the more practical it gets. The reason why I don't tend to preach in series, I have done that, and I'm not against that. If people can do it, great, praise God for that. But I like to go verse by verse through the Bible. I just like to plow through the thing. And one of the reasons is because if I go to the Bible and I have a topic here, uh, how to work on troubled marriages, and I go to the Bible on how to work on troubled marriages, first of all, when I preach, I'll be talking to people with troubled marriages. Now, you know, what about the other ten of you? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, okay, that was a pretty popular one, but you know, there's other, okay, I, I won't be thinking about the, the church as a whole, but the other thing is that, if I go to the Bible with my idea what the problem is, I also go to the Bible with my idea what a solution is. So I look up all the verses I deal with marriage and whatever, but there might be something hidden away, some golden nugget that I never even thought of, that's got a whole lot, maybe not directly, but indirectly to say about what to do about troubled marriages. And, and, and if you always go to the Bible with your agenda, you'll always miss that golden nugget. But see, if you just plow through the book, just go verse by verse, well then, you're going to get all the food there. And, and, and I believe that the more theological it gets, the more practical it gets. Now this morning will be an example of that, because this morning we're going to fly kind of high theologically, at least at points. 
we're going to start talking a little bit about the Trinity. And, and uh, do not tune me out like, oh, here we go, that irrelevant piece of speculation. No, 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 no. This stuff gets really, really practical. So hang with me on this. Uh, but we need to dig into the Word of God. The book of Hebrews, we're going to book for some time. And you've got to know this. It is a theologically demanding book. You're going to have to put on your thinking caps and, 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 and wrestle with this thing. So let's read the first four verses again. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. He's talking to Jews now. The, the, the Hebrew congregation was a, uh, was a congregation of Jews who were now thinking about going back to Judaism and abandoning Jesus Christ. So the author here says this, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, in this final chapter of world history, this drama that God is writing, in the end here, He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things. What does that mean? It's kind of you just normally just read over it. The heir of all things. What does it mean? And through whom he made the universe. What does that mean? The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Well, you know what that means because we preached on it last week. He sustains all things by his power. His powerful word. What a concept there. He sustains all things. The next breath you breathe, you know why you breathed it? Because the Lord was speaking you into existence. And now that breath, too. He gave you that one. Oh, that one, too. It's another gift. 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 You want another heartbeat? You got one. Another one on the heartbeat? You got one. He's constantly sustaining all things by his powerful word. If he were to ever shut up speaking Greg Boyd, Greg Boyd would cease to exist. So would you. He sustains all things by his powerful word. That's the son that's being spoken of here. And after he provided purification for sins... This amazes me. Every, every second we exist, we exist because God is sustaining us. <sighs> okay. Uh, after he provided purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, came as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. The whole thing about the, uh, Hebrews 1 is that these people are going back to Judaism and they're focusing on angels as the ones who are going to help them uh, get by in life. And the author is saying, Jesus is superior to the angels. That's what this whole chapter is about. Um, last week we talked about Jesus' superiority because he, unlike the angels, is the exact representation of the Father's being, the manifestation of the Father. This morning we're going to talk about Jesus being superior to the angels because he's the creator of all things and he's the heir of all things. And next week we're just going to talk about angels. Touched by an angel. God loves you. So we'll, we'll, we'll deal with that next week. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. I love Monica, the, the angel with an Irish brogue. Colossians chapter 1. This is also talking about Jesus the Creator, the supremacy of Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the image of the invisible God. That's exact representation stuff. He's the firstborn over all creation. That doesn't mean he came first, that he was born first. It's a Jewish way of saying he's the inheritor. The firstborn inherited everything. He gets the pot. The kitten caboodle belongs to him. He's the firstborn of creation. For by him all things were created. Say all things. Okay, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. 
He's talking about the angels there. Whether they're good or bad, they were created by Him. All things were created by Him, and all things were created for Him. Say all things again. All things. Was there anything that was made that He didn't make? No, oh, that was a tough one, wasn't it? He is before all things. And in Him, all things hold together. There's that verse again, sustaining, sustaining all things. All things hold together because of Him. I'm held together by Him. You're held together by Him. The world's held together by Him. He is the Creator. I want to talk about the Lord is Creator and the Lord is Heir of all creation. Let's pray. Father, this is some heavy stuff here, but I pray, Lord God, that You would give us the mind to hear it and to understand it. Lord, You don't waste ink. And if You printed it in Your Word, it's got to be worth preaching on. And so, Lord, I just pray that You'd make it come alive here, Lord, this morning. I pray your spirit would flood this place. Just flow over this place. Flood our minds. Flood our hearts. And most of all, Lord, I pray that, that you would, in a spiritual way, Lord, cause every knee in this room this morning to bow before the Lord. To bow. Lord, there are maybe some knees here that used to bow but don't anymore and some that never have. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would just cause them to bow before you and see you and confess you and adore you as the Lord that you are. But Lord, I know that my words, I'm so aware, Lord, that my words are futile and useless and empty in making that happen. And so, God, I just want to relax in your presence and not strive in my spirit to try to make my words big enough and get frustrated, Lord. But I just will trust you to take whatever stumbling words I have and give, make them your word, Lord, and give them your power. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Jesus Christ, the Creator. The verse here says that all things were made through Christ. All things were made through the Son. Colossians chapter 1 says the same thing. All things were made by Him, and all things were made for Him. John chapter 1 says the same thing. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him. Without Him, nothing was made. John 1.3 you have over and over again throughout the New Testament this proclamation that the world was made by God through the Son. Now what does that mean? That the Father created the world through the Son. I don't know. I, I, I don't have a picture of this. I, I, I can't understand it. I, I don't think you can either. It's maybe something like the Father's generated it and the Son had the idea of how it should go or, or something or other like that. So sorry. I let you down. But I do know this, I know this, I know this much, that the Bible throughout, at least the New Testament throughout, proclaims that Jesus Christ is the creator of the world. He's the creator of the world. And that's a very important thing to know. For the author of the book of Hebrews, in this chapter, he proclaims that Christ is the creator because he's trying to get the attention of these Christians who are now giving up on Jesus. And he's saying, wait a minute, when you walk away from Jesus, you've got to know what you're doing. You're not just walking away from some angel. You're not just walking away from some prophet. You're not walking away from some teacher. You're walking away from the Creator. And to talk about the Creator is to talk about the Supreme Being. It's to talk about God Almighty. When the New Testament confesses that Jesus Christ, this first century Jew who was probably five feet tall, five feet three maybe, 
and 136 pounds, that he was the creator of the world, it's doing it in order to say that in some way he is the Lord God Almighty. It says here in verse 10 of chapter 1, this is teaching time here, look at, look at verse 10 here of this chapter, it says this, he also says, the author says of David, now he's quoting Psalms 104, I think it's Psalms 104, Psalms 102, in the beginning, he's saying this to, the, to, to these Jews, you guys, your own, your own Bible says this, your Old Testament says this, O Lord, O Lord, capital L, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain forever. The word Lord there in the Old Testament was the sacred, it was called the Tetragrammaton. It was the sacred name of God, Yahweh. Jews would never even utter that because they believed it was so holy it should never be uttered by sinful lips. It was the highest title that you could ever give to God, Yahweh. Or some translated Jehovah, the Tetragrammaton. Here, in Greek, it's translated kudios, which means Lord, capital L. And here the author takes it and he applies it to Jesus. This Jesus that you're thinking about walking away from, he's not a prophet, he's not an angel, he is the Lord Almighty. Because there's one creator, there's one God, there's one sovereign potentate, and he created all things. And to say that he's the creator means he's the Lord God Almighty. There's no second creator, there's no junior creator, there's no surrogate creator, there's just the creator, capital C, and he is it. That's it, right there. The Lord God Almighty. To say that Jesus Christ is the creator is to say that he is divine. That's why in Colossians chapter 1 it says that he is before all things. What does that mean? It means that there's nothing before him. That means as far back as you can go, you find Jesus. Okay, go back another 20 billion years. Oh, he's still there. What about 70 trillion billion infinity years? My son always does that. Well, I love you, infinity. Okay, we go back infinity. He's still there. He's before all things. That means he never began. That means he's the Lord God Almighty. He's above all things. What does that mean? It means that there's nothing above him. He owns all things. What does it mean? It means no one owns him. The verse says, Colossians 1 is saying, that this is the Lord God Almighty. In a way that we human beings can't understand, my Lord, we don't even understand the nature of light. Is it a wave? Is it a particle? We don't understand. You know, how can it be both? So many things that we don't understand. The Bible tells us, teaches us, infers that God exists in three different ways. He exists fully as Father. He exists fully as Son. He ex exists fully as Holy Spirit. The cash value of all that is that when it says that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, it's not saying anything less than that He's God. He's the Lord God Almighty. The fact that these verses imply that is also shown by this. Sometimes you get people coming around to your door. They knock, they knock on your door and they got a green Bible. It's called the New World Translation. Some of you know about this Bible. These people are called Jehovah Witnesses. They don't believe that Jesus Christ is divine. They don't believe he's God. They think he's, a, he's an archangel. He's, he's, a, he's really up there. They reverence him, but he's not God. So when they come to Colossians chapter 1, what they do is they say... Since the Bible doesn't agree with their theology, they simply changed the Bible. And so, whatever it says that he was before all things, they have him say he's before all other things. And when it says he's above all things, they have it say he's above all other things. And the things he owns, all things, they say he owns all other things. The word other, folks, is not found there in that passage. The word other in Greek is heteros. It's not found in that passage. It's not found in this chapter. It's not found in the book. Now, why isn't in that verse then in their green Bibles? Because, and the people who go knocking on the door, they don't know this. 
But the people who translated that thing did know it, and it kind of ticks me off a little bit, because they claim to be translating the Bible, but they insert words that are not there. And that's a very important word not to insert. Because according to Scripture, he's the creator, he's the Lord, he's the king of all kings, not a second king. The master of all masters, not a second master. The God of all gods, not some second-rate God. He's the king of kings, amen. Don't go inserting this word other. Don't go inserting the word other. And, 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 and the cash value of all of this is, is, is this. The Bible portrays us. When you later, it means that he is worthy of our worship. Worship is simply ascribing worth, ultimate worth to something. Worship is ascribing ultimate worth to something. The Bible presupposes, and every Jew knew this, that only God is to be worshipped in a religious sense, to be ascribed ultimate worth in our life. The Lord says to Satan, uh, when, this, when, the, when Satan's trying to te- tempt him, he says, you shall worship the Lord thy God, and him only shall you serve. Only one being is worthy of worship. Now here's, here's how this is important. If you look at Acts chapter 10, human beings, mere human beings, never should be worshipped. The Lord sends Peter to go preach to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius is this pagan. He doesn't understand diddly squat about the things of God, but he's got a good heart. And so the Lord says, Cornelius, I'm going to reveal to you the, the truth about things. I'm going to send you a messenger. Peter shows up there to preach about Jesus. Well, Cornelius thinks that he's Jesus or some kind of supreme being. So Cornelius, this pagan who doesn't understand diddly squat about anything, falls on the ground and starts to worship Peter. Peter, Peter, Peter. Peter says, don't do it, stop. Look, read it, Acts chapter 10. He goes, don't do that. And there's even like a little fear in his voice. He says, I'm a man just like you. Don't go worship. Man, I'm going to get zapped you keep that up. <laughs> worship God. Every Jew knew you do not get worship. Don't let anyone bow down before you. God is to be worshipped, no one else. An angel, read Acts, or Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. John in the book of Revelation, he's kind of having this, uh, you know, this, all the stuff in the book of Revelation. He's seeing all this, and it's kind of like, I mean, it's sort of hallucinogenic, you know, there's seven candlesticks and 18 eyes and seraphim and cherubim, and he's kind of getting freaked out. He gets a little confused. You can understand it. So he sees this angel that's bright and shiny. He thinks it's God. So he falls down and starts to worship this angel. Well, this angel starts to freak. The angel says what Peter said, stop it! Don't do it! In fact, in the Greek, in the Greek it's, it's, it's a strong, emphatic thing. Don't, don't, get to. I don't get zapped. Worship God. They understand it. You don't worship people. You don't worship angels. You don't worship anything but the Lord God Almighty. Now look what, what the author of Hebrews says. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6. He's contrasting the sun with the angels, and he says this. But about the sun, the son of God, he says this. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. That's not the verse I want, but that's a good one. Okay, verse 6. <laughs> ah. Go out and hang thyself. No, that's not the verse either. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. <laughs> Let all God's angels worship him. Now, now let's, let's do some mathematics here, a little equation here. Angels aren't supposed to be worshipped. People aren't supposed to be worshipped. Only God is to be worshipped. Jesus comes into the world and God says, angels worship him. What does that tell you? It tells you that Jesus Christ is not an angel. Jesus Christ is the one that angels worship. And that tells you that he is the Lord God. 
And so throughout his life, he allowed people to do what Peter didn't allow people to do, what angels don't allow people to do. He allows people to worship him. In Acts chapter 28, verses 7, no, verses 7 and verse, uh, no, verse 9 and verse 17. Why do I have to correct myself? You're not going to look it up. I mean, verses 7, well, it's on tape, so I've got to be accurate here. Verses 9 and verse 17. Jesus shows up after the resurrection. He's full of radiance. He's full of glory. The disciples see him, and it says that they fall down on his feet, and they worship him. They worship him. Now, Jesus doesn't go, stop it, knock it off. I'm just a rabbi, man. You're... No. He says, all hail. That, viva la difference. That is the difference, amen. That is the difference. When we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about something very different than when we're talking about Peter. We're talking about something very different than when we're talking about angels. We're talking about something very different than when we're talking about anything. We're talking about what the Bible says, 1 Timothy 3.16. God was manifested in the flesh. God was manifested in the flesh. The fullness of the Godhead, Colossians 2.9 says. The fullness of the Godhead. The fullness of the Shekinah glory. The fullness of the Word of God. The fullness of God's power, light, and splendor dwelt in the man, Jesus Christ. And he was a man for sure. He was in every respect made like us. We'll get to that in, in, in Hebrews chapter 4 sometime before the year 2000. We'll, we'll preach on that. He was a man for sure, but he was also the Lord God Almighty and everything hangs upon our seeing that, believing that, receiving that, accepting that, and holding fast to that. The Lord of all lords, the King of all kings, the one who is worthy to be worshipped and adored, honored and praised. There are some places, and I went to seminary where these places where these, these pastors of these churches hung out a lot, and they used to talk, some liberal churches, and, and they, they, they talk about jesus olatry, jesus olatry, And they kind of like laugh at it. You know, these simple Christians, you know, these evangelical types, they're always involved in jesus olatry. And what they mean by that is Jesus and idolatry. They worship Jesus, and that's such an uncouth thing to do. It's like getting excited in church. It's just uncouth. It's just, you know, it's just, uh, yeah. I, remember I had a person tell me one time after service, uh, you, don't, you don't act like somebody who graduated from Yale. <laughs> it's like, oh, really? <laughs> How are you supposed to act when you're from Yale? Do you have any crepe upon? I, I don't know. <laughs> it's just these simple Christians get all worked up over Jesus. Jesus is all a tree. But look at it. If you're looking at the... And they think they're paying Jesus some high, mighty compliments by saying he's a great teacher, wisest man that ever lived, uh, you know, really big on social justice. We can use him as a mighty model and metaphor of what God is like and all this other kind of stuff. But according to the word of God, and this is just a peripheral thing. This is the core. This is the center. This is the axle around which the whole wheel of Christianity rotates. God is manifest in the flesh here. Jesus says this. John chapter 5, verse 23. Honor me even as you honor the Father. If any other human being says that, they are guilty of blasphemy. But Jesus says it because it's true. Honor me even as you honor the Father. Respect me the way you respect God. Treat me the way you treat the Father. Worship me even as you worship the Father. If you see me, he says, John 14, you have seen the Father. This is God manifest in the flesh. John 1.18 says, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son of God, he has declared him, he has made him known, he has manifested. And it comes down to this, you guys. When you look at the person of Jesus Christ, it means that you're looking at very God. His love is the love of God. What he thinks about you is what God thinks about you. His care for you is God's care for you. There's no gulf between him and God. There's no 
separations of mind here. What you see is what you get. God manifested in the flesh. Luther put it this way. No other God have I but thee, born in a manger, died on a tree. Keep your mind focused on the Lord Jesus Christ and live with every breath of your life, all that's within you, your innermost being, to give him the praise and the honor and the worship that is due his name. Throughout the book of Revelation, all the creatures that are there, the living creatures, these funny-looking things that are there, and they're probably going to get mad at me when I get there because he said, we said it would look funny. But they do look funny. they got all these eyes. And, and, and the elders and, and, and the, the bride is there. And they all lay down before the throne. They put their, 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 their crowns before the throne. They said, worthy to him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. They are worthy to receive glory and honor and power and adoration. He's the creator of all things. He owns all things. He's to be worshipped above all things. Amen. That's what Christianity is about. It's about giving him the glory that is due his name, not only in what we say, but in what we do. It also implies this, that only the creator is to be worshipped, which means created is to be worshipped. You might say, well, I never worship anything that's created. You know, I'm not like these pagans over there in the middle of Africa who... You know, they got these temples and these trees and they make little you know, funny statues out of them and they, they dance around them with, you know, chickens and they rip off their heads and they worship these idols. I would never do that! I would never worship an idol. Or these statues in India where they, you know, rub the belly of Buddha and they do homage and they do all these things. I would never do that. I'm not guilty of that. That's idolatry. I never worship a created thing. And in this culture, we probably wouldn't worship a created thing like that, but we do worship created things, you guys. Worship, what is worship? It's simply giving ultimate worth to something. Another way of saying that is making something in this world most important to you. That is what is ultimately worthwhile to you. What makes you and breaks you? What is it that you wake up in the morning for? What is it that grabs you? What defines who you are? That is what you worship. That has ultimate worth for you. And it may not be some, some uh, carved out tree that you choke a chicken around, but it's got... It could be your car, it could be your house, it could be your intellect, it could be your beautiful, stunning voice, it could be your beautiful, stunning face. That's a created thing. I get life from that, you take that away, and my life is no longer worth living. If there's anything in our life that, if someone takes it away, your life's no longer worth living, obviously, that's God to you. That's ultimate worth to you. That's your idol, and you're worshiping it. If you can touch it, if you can taste it, if you can hear it, if you can smell it, what sense am I missing here? If you can feel it. No, I always said touch it. If you can touch it, if you can taste it, if you can see it, if you can hear it, if you can smell it, it ain't God. Don't cling to it. Amen? God, the creator, is the one to be worshipped. Ultimate worth, ultimate being, who we are, what we think about ourselves, what, well, how we evaluate ourselves has to come from what God thinks about us. Your house is not car. Your house is not car. That was bright. Your house... <laughs> is not God, don't cling to it. Your car is not God, don't cling to it. See, I, I think in paragraphs. I've got to jump ahead here. Your family is not God. It's very important. It's not ultimate worth. Your health is very important, but it's not ultimate worth. It's not God. Don't cling to it. Your wonderful voice is important, but it's not God. Don't cling to it. Your good looks, your brain, your intellect, your, your promotion, your fame, your recognition, what people think about you, your religion is not God. It's a created thing. It's important. Don't cling to it. There's only one that we're supposed to cling to, one we're supposed to ascribe ultimate worth to, one that's supposed to define who we are, and that is, the New Testament says, Hebrew one, Hebrews 1 says, the Lord Jesus Christ, period. End of conversation. Amen. 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 
Ah. Second thing here about this verse. Jesus Christ is the heir of all things. Not A-I-R, but the heir of all things. H-E-I-R. Or is it I-E-R? I'm dyslexic, so I don't know. The heir or the heir. I, who cares? What does that mean? It means he's the inheritor of all things. Now here's why this is important. And here's where we're going to get kind of theological, so put on thinking caps. Um, we bent theological, but now we're going to get thick. All right? Jean-Paul Sartre asked this question. Jean-Paul Sartre, being in nothingness. He said, why is there something instead of nothing? Maybe you've thought that question before. You stay up late at night worried about that. Why is there something rather than nothing? Well, this is what philosophers do. That's what we pay them to think thoughts like this. Why is there something rather than nothing? Jean-Paul Sartre said, there's no reason. You know, why is there creation rather than no creation? Why well, he said, there's no reason. Life's absurd, it's bizarre, it's crazy, it's futile, it's pointless, it's endless, it just is. It's an absurd question, our reasoning is absurd. We're just blobs existing in a void of absolute futileness with no reason for being. We just are. Happy thought. Most people in their gut have intuited that Sartre, this atheistic philosopher, was not right. So they think there must be a point to the whole thing. There must be a reason. What's it all about Angie? You know, that kind of thing. So not knowing what the answer is, they've invented some answers. In paganism, uh, they have usually answers take one form or another like this. We are here to serve the gods, the higher beings. They created us because they want us to wait on them. We're supposed to serve them. We're supposed to offer meat to them and all this other kind of stuff. That's not a very noble cause, but it's better than what Sothra offers you. So they go with it. Other groups say that uh, life is here because God's dreaming a dream. It's all an illusion. It's all a play. In Hinduism, the idea here is that Brahman, the one, the one reality that exists, got bored, so he starts playing hide-and-go-seek with himself, and you are Brahman playing hide-and-go-seek with himself. You don't know you're Brahman. That's because you're playing hide-and-go-seek with yourself. It makes the story really interesting, and someday you're going to wake up and realize that you're a god all the time. You have a good laugh, and then do the whole thing over again. That's why there's something rather than nothing. Christianity has a different angle on this. Christianity says the reason why there's something rather than nothing, at least outside of God, is because God is love. The one thing that exists forever, the one thing that is an end in and of itself, the final explanation for everything is that God is love. God is love. As far back as you can go, you find love. This is where the stuff about God being triune comes in. God, in God's own triune nature, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, He doesn't need the world to be loving. He is loving. God is love. He doesn't become loving when He creates something outside of Himself. Throughout eternity, He is infinite, endless, ecstatic, passionate love. That's who God is. That's the most defining characteristic of His being. And whatever God does, directly or indirectly, comes out of love. It's expression of, of God's love. And the world exists because God is love. And this ties into this whole thing about Jesus Christ being the heir of the world. Okay, follow me on this. The Bible portrays it. The creation is here as something that the Father gives to the Son. It expresses the inner triune love of the Godhead. Jesus says, the Father has given me all things. He loves me. He gives, he gives me all things. Matthew chapter 11, John chapter 6, it's found throughout all the place. So the Bible repeatedly says that the Son is the heir of the world. Now, he helped create the world. He helped design it. But it's something like the, the, the Father letting the Son pick out a gift for himself because the Father wants, this is one way that the eternal God existing throughout eternity wants to express love between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the Bible says that the Son is the heir of all creation. In, in, in Psalms chapter 2, it says the nations belong to them. He, they are his inheritance. The world is his inheritance. All things were created by him, and all things exist for him. 
Why do they exist for him? Because God is love, the Father loves the Son, and he's creating the world, expressing the world, showing off his wisdom, showing off his power, showing off his might, but most of all, showing off his love. One more expression of love within the Godhead. The world exists for that reason. And sometime it'll just do you some good to go out by the lake and look at the world from, with those spectacles on. We usually look at a tree and we see a potential house or some paper in it. But see it as a gift, an expression of God's love. That little butterfly, I don't want to get too you know, romantic up here, but that, some, just do it sometime. The butterfly flying over there, the bird over there, the, the smell, the sounds, the, the beauty of the creation around you. It's one big ecstatic dance. It's a gift that God has given to his son. But now here's the thing that really grabs you. The part of the creation that the Bible most focuses in on as the, as, as the crowning achievement of God who is now giving this package deal to his son. The jewel of the whole thing occurred on day number six when God said, this is very good. It's when he created human beings. And the main focus, the main thing that the Bible taught son inheriting, he gets the whole thing. The devil thinks he owns it right now. He's going to learn in short order that he doesn't. It's going to be given back to the son. He's going to inherit the whole thing. He owns it all. But the thing that is best, according to Scripture, the thing that it focuses most on, that delights the father in giving to the son and delights the son in receiving it, the thing that he focuses most on is you and me. People who can say yes to God's love, people who can return that love, people who can participate in that love. So Jesus says this in John chapter 6. He says, All who the Father gives me come unto me. Think about this. Son, I want, you to, I want to introduce you to some people here. This is a gift. Okay, this, this is part of that package deal. I'm just expressing love here. This is what I do. I want to give you some people here. And Jesus says, all that the Father gives me, come unto me. John 6, 37. It's found all over the place. And of those who come unto me, I don't lose any, Jesus says. I don't turn any away. In fact, I lay down my life for them that they might come unto me. The picture here, the Bible calls these people who say yes to God. And anyone who is here this morning who has said yes to God, you're one of these crowning jewels. The Bible says you are a bride. The bride of Jesus Christ. The idea here, it comes out of the the imagery of the first century, the father, the Jewish father, gives the son a bride. I've got something very special for you, son. Of all the things I've given to you, all the inheritance I want you to have, all the things I've ever achieved in my life that I want you to have, this one here is the best. Look at her. The Bible says that when Jesus Christ beholds his church, read the Song of Solomon sometimes, he looks and he is ravished with love. Dad, this is a good one. This is great. The, crown, the pinnacle of the creation, the crowning jewel. The rest of the creation is sort of like the setting of the ring. This is the diamond that sets in the ring. It is you, it is me. The Father is so wise, we get to be the inheritance of the Son. Because the Father is so powerful, we are the inheritance of the Son. Follow me on this. Because the Father is so loving, so passionate, so true, and is so enraptured with his own Son, we get to be the, 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 the prize. The grand prize of the whole creation isn't some galaxies, the wonders of nature, the splendors of the ocean, the mammals at the bottom of the sea. I don't know if there are mammals, no, there aren't any mammals at the bottom of the sea, but you get the point. The stars in heaven, no, those things are nothing compared to this. It is the bride of Jesus Christ. And anyone who says yes to Jesus Christ, anyone who says yes to the Father, anyone who says, take me, Jesus Christ, is now made into his bride. It's the pinnacle of the whole thing. You may be asking yourself this question. 
What kind of gift am I? Doesn't that sound ridiculous? I outshine the galaxies in terms of, I mean, the God, God Almighty, who could do anything, is giving me as a gift to the sun. I hear the sun going, whoopee. Oh, wow, this is great. I'm really underwhelmed. You may be thinking to yourself, man, I've never been anyone's gift. I mean, I'm, 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 a, I'm a, the son's inheritance. I'm a... See, and this is the most beautiful thing of all here, is that the father expresses not only his power, but his grace. And the son expresses his grace. in taking you and in taking me and in taking anyone who will say yes to this and making us into that bride. It's not what he finds here. Jesus Christ is like a, a, a perfect husband. A husband doesn't love his wife on the basis of the worth he finds. The husband creates the worth by loving her as she is. That creates worth. So also this bride is created to be the bride that shines brighter than the noonday sun, that has the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself, that glorifies God by, by who she is, not because of who we are, but because of who God is. The most beautiful part of Christianity is this. It, in the end, has nothing with you and has nothing to do with me. It's got to do with God. The Lord made a deal with himself, all right? The Father wants to give a present to the Son. All we got to do is say, go ahead and do it, and we're the benefactors. And when the Bible says we're the benefactors, we are really the benefactors. Because the Bible says not only are we the grand prize to the Son, not only are we the inheritance of the Son, not only are we trophies with him, but we are ourselves lavished on with every spiritual blessing. When you become a bride of the Son, the Father blesses you with every spiritual blessing in, in high places. And so his righteousness is given to you. His joy becomes your joy. His peace becomes your peace. His riches become your riches. And we are now robed with a beauty and a righteousness that we could never have on our own because we say yes to the son who simply wants a bride because the father wants to give it to him. And I don't know what that does for you, but it makes me just want to right now do a jig. It makes me want to scream because maybe you're one of the types that just go, ah, that's very nice. But I'm one of the types that just want to say, I cannot believe that. It could not be better. It could not be more beautiful. It could not be more overwhelming. It's just, it's too good to be true. And yet there it is in the word of God. I am the inheritance of the son. And so he asked the question, well, how, how, how is this practical? How will this help me with my marriage? Look at, you know what, right now, this maybe does not, band, get ready to come up. Worship team, we're going to sing another song here. We're, the worship session was too short, and my sermon's getting too long, but hang with me here. I right now don't know what's going to happen in your marriage. Maybe it's too late. Maybe, it's, maybe that's done with. I, I don't know. I don't know how you're going to deal with your kids right now. I don't know what you're going to do with this sickness that the doctor's diagnosed. I don't know whether you're going to live or die. I don't know whether I'm going to live or die. I don't know what you're going to do with your financial problems. I don't know right now what I'm going to do with my financial problems. I don't know how to deal with you know, the seven steps to deal with stress in the workplace. I don't know whether you should lose your job or get a job. I don't know what God's trying to tell you or not trying to tell you. I don't know diddly squat right now. But what I know is this. Our inherent better. The, the glory of God and what he's done for us could not be better. And somehow that makes everything else seem a little bit smaller, doesn't it? It puts it into perspective. The Bible says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And when you can stop and say, you know, just compare this. I got, I got, I got what, how many years do I have left? 50 years? 30? I don't know how many long time. There's nothing compared to the glory that we're going to have throughout eternity as we rejoice and glorify God and share in his blessings. We are the grand prize given by the Father to the Son, the recipients of every spiritual blessing in high places. And if nothing else, it's got to make us want to worship him.